Welcome to the MFA Made for Agriculture podcast. Here are your hosts, Adam Jones and Cameron Horine. Hey folks, well, welcome to this episode of the podcast. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Adam Jones here. We've got a cool episode for you today as well, and 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 I'm not sure if this one's going to air first or or the corn one will air first, but just kind of to make sure we get we get equal treatment to uh, to good old Midwestern crops these days. We wanted to get uh, our more soil more soy project product manager in here, um, and and Tommy Lee's joining us today. I think he's going to be a great guest. I think you're going to get get a lot out of uh, learning some of the agronomics on soybeans, some of the background genetics and everything. So Tommy, you want to introduce yourself and kind of just Tell a little bit about what you do, um, where you came from, all that good stuff. Okay. Yep. My name is Tommy Lee. I grew up in central Missouri. Uh, I attended Missouri State University. I have a bachelor's in agronomy. Uh, I've been with MFA for about seven years now. I first started out on the sales side of the organization, and about four years ago, I moved into the, the product management role for Morsoy. Cool. So you were like field sales or... <clears throat> yep, field okay. sales, and I specialize okay. on on selling seed. You like doing this better or being out in the field better? Oh, I like a little bit of both. I mean, it, <laughs> you, you kind of miss working with farmers from time to time. Sure. Yeah. Now those on farm interactions are cool. It, it's it's cool to see things at a different level. Sometimes um, gives you better perspective of kind of what's going on uh, with with what goes on at the farm. But yeah, it, it's definitely. I mean, I find myself the same way. You, yeah, you miss it a little yeah. bit. Yep. But I would say that you probably. Your selling experience gives you a different perspective in your product manager position too, because you kind of have, you've had experience on both sides, so it kind of, kind of makes you maybe helps you balance. Absolutely. How to think yeah. About things. Well, having that that experience working direct on the farm, it gives you a little bit of insight into what the the customers are looking for whenever they're looking for a, a specific variety or hybrid. Um, so, giving it kind of gave me a baseline on what our customers are looking for so that I can be sh- make sure that I'm aligned with what they're looking for. Sure, sure. Well, you know, anymore it doesn't seem like, you know, soybeans are not kind of the down part of the rotation. In the, in the last few years, uh, soybean prices really are kind of what have carried from farm profitability, honestly, mm-hmm. uh, through most of the Midwest. And certainly a crop folks are looking to, to get top end out of anymore. So I think... Going into this, and it's, the seed process is complicated, and so I think maybe the, the easiest way to start might be for you to kind of kind of give us a year in your shoes or kind of a cycle through um, kind of what you're looking at uh, as, far as, as far as hybrids, testing them out, and then we can kind of dive into the parts, um, parts after that. Okay, that sounds good. So every December, I meet with the, the major soybean genetic suppliers in the U.S., they'll meet with me and and show me what products that they're moving forward with so not only from an agronomic standpoint but they'll come with with breeder data so we'll discuss kind of what I'm looking for what they have to offer Um, once we we make it through that I'm gonna sit down in my spare time and and look at where our holes are and what products that they have that we probably need to move into our testing programs. So what, what we can stick into our replicated trials to uh, see how they perform specifically in our trade area. So the area that we're going to try to market these, these lines. From that point, I'm going to work with our agronomy team and we're going to set up our testing plan. So from our 
our replicated trials that we use are, are we typically start out with five replications. Uh, there'll be four row plots, 25 foot long. We use that first replication for, for training our salesmen so that they can get out into the trial, uh, get their hands on the products, pull them, learn, learn everything about them. Uh, we use the, the other four replications for our data replications. So we, we see a lot of value in, in what we're doing there. All of the national lines, all of the breeders use replicated trials uh, for their product advancement. So we wanted to make sure that we're on the same par as everyone else. Uh, we believe that replicated trials improves our, our quality of our data because we're taking out the, the variations in the field. Uh, we've seen tremendous benefits in the quality of our data versus using strip trials. We feel like we can get a lot more data out of one, one uh, replicated trial than we could, say, 10 strip trials. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. You control the environment a little bit better, yep. too. So my spring is getting plot seed ready for these replicated trials, and then um, once they're planted, I'm going to be out there uh, looking at all the different trials. So uh, we don't just use our replicated trials for um, yield data. We're also collecting agronomic information off of there because whenever we get uh, information from the breeders, we're kind of looking at a nationwide view of these, so they may only have three to maybe five trials within our uh, geographical footprint that we operate in. So I want to make sure that the agronomics are, I'm seeing the same agronomic results that they are. So I'm looking at stuff like emergence, early season vigor, plant height, plant width, pot height, mid-season standability, uh, all the major diseases, frog eye phytophthora, stem canker, charcoal rot, brown stem, sudden death, cercospora target spot, and then also late season standability. So we're getting a lot of data out of these trials. If we're taking four replications and we have somewhere around 20 plus trials that we're looking at, we're getting a lot of data hits. Yeah, that's a real great benefit for us. Um, like, like we've talked about, and like we said, we're not sure which order these are gonna be presented, but we talked about with Darren on the corn side, having our own trials within our trade territory allows us to feel a lot more confident in the data that we're getting. And you know, we. You'll, I'm sure we'll talk about here about the data you're getting with the breeders and stuff, but it allows you to confirm that data, but also in our own trade territory where we could space space them out and we could feel a lot more confident in what we're that's right before and, we push it out. And MFI has huge advantage because we're getting almost five x the amount of data points that that the breeders are getting. So right. really taking it down onto the the scope that we're operating, uh, and it does it brings a lot of confidence into what we're bringing out. Yep. From that point, you know it's gonna the product's gonna make it through that that uh, trialing program. So we're gonna get our ratings, we're gonna get our yield information. After we consolidate all that information, we're gonna start working off of the yield averages and uh, average the agronomics that we see across the board. So then at the end of the season, I can make the the determination if we're gonna move forward with the product um, if it's filling a void from an agronomic standpoint or a, a yield or maturity standpoint. So it's we're testing a lot of products in these trials. We may have 50 to 60 experimentals in these trials and we may only move forward with one to two products a year. So we really have the ability to hand pick what's working best for our environment. The other thing is, is that the breeder may come to me with one to two years worth of data uh, before they even present it to me, so I'm gonna build off their data set as well to make okay. sure that I see the same trends that they were seeing. 
after that, we'll we'll move into production on a line. I also want to talk about our first look products. So the first look product for us is a product based off of uh, breeder data. It looked like it had a lot of strength. So it was enough for us to do a limited production run. It's not going to be a, a, a giant quantity for us, but we want to make sure that we're bringing the best genetics as quickly as we can, because mm -hmm. especially with this trait shift, uh, you know, we're, we're transitioning a lot of straight extends to extend flex. So we want to make sure that we are on the front side of that curve and not on the back side. So first look product is going to get a name for us. So, uh, it's going to get a more so a name, but it's going to be tested in the trials. We actually don't release that product until it is made to cut for us. So that's one thing that may be a little bit different for what we do versus some other companies uh, is that we may make this production run, but if it doesn't pan out for us, we don't have to sell it. We'll, we'll can that production and, and push the products that are proven for us, you know. So... It, like in today's, it seems like, yeah, revolving door of, of new herbicide traits and all that stuff going on. Like, what's the lifespan of a, of a variety? So, typically whenever we move into a new trait platform, um, we typically see two years lifespan out of that product just because the rate of genetic gain is uh, increasing so much. So... <clears throat> You can't fall in love with a soybean variety these days whenever we're going yeah, through a trade yeah. transition. Yep. Um, because if you are, if you're falling in love with it and you're stuck on that variety, I think you're going to be behind the times uh, within a couple of years. Yeah. And I think it's funny that, you know, we say a lifespan of a variety may be only two, three years before we maybe have something new and approved on it. But it's crazy to think about that we're only getting it for two or three years that we're looking at it. But the backside of it, it's taken lots of years before they even get it to that point. It's taken seven to eight years yeah, to bring a new exactly. body forward. To, so it takes seven or eight, and then it's only out for two. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't seem... Which, once we get a little bit of maturity in these trade platforms that we're currently utilizing, you know, some of these products may stick around. We've had some Extend products that have been there almost five years just okay. we picked the right one off the bat and we haven't found something better yeah i was gonna say we have i know we have a liberty link line that yeah you know we've had some for a while, quite a while so yeah um just go back on when you were talking about your schedule of things you said that you know in december time you meet with the genetic suppliers and you are talking to them about some of the traits they have coming forward and kind of what traits you're looking for kind of talk about the process of you deciding what trait, what trait, how are you determining what traits we're looking, we need to fill within our void and kind of what you're looking for um, to, you know, what they're bringing forward? So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to try to assess the needs of our customers. So what, what trait package are they looking for? What herbicide tolerance are they looking for? Um, that's really the determining factor of which way we go is what, what's the needs of our customers. So uh, I know that there's a lot of uh, interest in Enlist and um, ExtendFlex currently. Um, I think that we'll be running with ex a small uh, lineup of Extend another year. But <clears throat> herbicide traits drive a lot of the decisions in soybeans. Whether somebody likes the Enlist platform over the ExtendFlex platform or vice versa, we, we want to make sure that we've got 
top varieties in both platforms so that we give more options to our customers. No, I agree, Tommy, on the, I mean, there's definitely a shift from that we're seeing where most, most of our producers are thinking about E3s or ExtendFlex. But I mean, there is also some other herbicide traits out there like GT27s. Um, as far as I know, we don't have any of those in our more soil lineup. Can you talk about maybe why we've, the, why we've went that direction? I think a lot of it really revolves around what's the demand in the marketplace. We want to make sure that we've got adequate supply of the, the traits that are most needed. Um, we just saw that the, the demand for GT27 was limited at the time that it came out. Uh, you've got other herbicide options that are, are really going to take that, that place. Um, you know, at MFA, they also sell, or we also sell multiple brands. So we, we let another brand take on that business, the GT27 business. We just wanted to make sure that we're growing big piles of the stuff that we have high demand of. We all know that we can't have unlimited soybean supply of everything. So sure. no. trying to prioritize what we're doing uh, to make sure that, that we can match the needs of our customers. No, I think that makes total sense. I think it's a great idea that we can kind of really find a wheelhouse that we need to fit in and make sure that we're um, utilizing the, those traits and trying to make sure we have the best products for those. Yeah. Uh, kind of another thing that it seems like when when a new when a new product comes out or a new genetic line comes out or uh, you know a new herbicide trait comes out, um, you know you always hear people like, well, you know we should switch, but but we know the best genetics are in whatever. It seemed like when Enlist came out, everybody was worried because ah oh, the the best genetics you know are definitely in the Extend line. How much truth is there really to to some of that stuff? So with every new trait launch, you're gonna. Sit- I'm not going to say that you're going to see yield drag, but you'll see that within three years, they've got very strong genetics within okay. that trait. Um, you're seeing a big ramp up in ExtendFlex currently. You know, we're going to we're gonna turn over our ExtendFlex lineup just like we did our Enlist lineup. Our first releases in Enlist are no longer in the Morsoy bag. Um, it's a completely new lineup from where we started, and I, I think you'll see the exact same thing out of ExtendFlex. We just have to... Make sure that we're selecting the right varieties for the right reasons, and really, to me, that is agronomics and, and yield potential. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense because it's you know I guess yeah it's hard to, to ramp up to that degree on on launch year or, or whatever you know kind of takes a couple growing seasons to catch up. So when you get into the production side of things, you said you mentioned back there um, kind of during your your calendar your discussion that that you make a determination of of what we're going to go to market with or what you want to push forward to be, to be available. Kind of what's that look like kind of in the background? Where do those beans come from? Um, that sort of thing as far as when you decide, hey, I want this number. Okay. So we'll, we'll order, I guess to start, we're going to evaluate the needs of our customers through our, our sales staff and seed specialists uh, and figure out where, where the piles need to be. We're going to go back to the genetic supplier and order parent seed. That parent seed will be shipped to our, our processing facilities and uh, we'll line up acres for that stuff to be grown. Um, that process, there's a lot of steps in there. There's a lot of logistical steps uh, <laughs> yeah. from the time of ordering parent seed to getting that uh, seed planted on, on a grower for our production facility. 
it's always a it's always a challenge to to get all of that all of those pieces moving so quickly because yeah. from the time I typically have about three to four weeks to build my production plan from the time that I meet with the genetic suppliers. Um, I got to get my forecasting in to see where the demand is on certain products and then turn that around and break it out to the, the seed processors or production facilities. So how many, you said production facilities, how many production facilities do we have? Like, do we just have, are we utilizing only one right now or do we have multiple spread across the state? Because I mean, we we, I mean, we do produce quite a few units of more soy, yeah. soybeans. So we actually have four production facilities that we work with, uh, two in the state of Missouri, one in Northeast Arkansas, and, and actually one in North Carolina. Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it seems like uh, you got more volume to deal with, too, than you do with, you know, seed corn production. And, and the reason that we use so many seed production facilities is really to mitigate our risk. Uh if we get a weather pattern that comes in in the fall or even during the summer, some I've seen it to where one production facility uh, is in a, in a drought situation and, and another one uh, is kind of making up that slack. So trying to spread those varieties across those different production facilities just to make sure that we're getting the best quality. So we, got, we have options to put the best quality in the bag. Mm-hmm. I know I, there's times where you get I don't know about complaints, but I always hear, you know, kind of rustles in the countryside from time to time about somebody went to pick up some units, not necessarily our beans, but just, just any, any, uh, dealer's beans, you know, and they're different size than what they've been planting or is there any like thought process or is there anything, I guess there's really not much they can do at the production facility on the side of things. Um, is there any way they can control some of that to where you get more of a consistent bean size? Size overall is pretty genetic driven and it's very um, condition driven as well. Right. There may be a year that we have large seed and then the next year we have small seed. It, it, there's a lot of factors that come into play. Where the, where the production facilities really shine is how consistent is that seed size. Um, so they're going to uh, run it over equipment to make sure that it's sized consistently to also to um, take any cracked seed coats out or uh, oblong seed, but then also sort it by color so that we've got a consistent product going out the, going out the door. Yeah. So kind of, um, you know, you kind of walked us a little bit through, uh, can you kind of walk us like when you, you said you were taking a lot of agronomic data through the year on some of the plot stuff, um, what exactly are you looking at? I mean, I, I know you mentioned the, um, some of the disease rating stuff, but, but like how did, for example, like an emergence thing, like how do you rate emergence? Like, does it come up or does it not? Or is it like timeliness or how are you making those determinations? So there's a couple of factors that come into play there. Um, I, I look at it from the standpoint of how quickly did they come out of the ground? Uh, that's truly emergence, but I'm also taking a sub note of emergence evenness. So okay. how evenly is it coming up? Sure. Um, the, you know, in my from my definition standpoint, there's a difference between uh, emergence and vigor. So I try to be there as the the beans are popping through the ground, and then I'll try to come back in a week or so and see um, what the vigor of those plants look like. You, 
with certain varieties, you'll notice that some of them are a little bit slower to come out of the ground, but then they really catch up quickly after they're out of the ground. So that's the difference in my mind between emergence and early season vigor. I, I take okay. separate ratings on that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Which is important for us in Missouri. I mean, yeah. we're not always uh, blessed with the best uh, conditions after planting. So we see a lot of stress there. So yeah. with with having some, some clay base in our soils, uh, having that quick emergence is, is key. Uh, rather, is it, even if it's in the hills or the bottom ground, um, anytime that we get those heavy rains, uh, trying to get those things cracked through the ground. Cold, wet soils, kind of a theme of... And, and on that line, you know, a trendy thing to do now is, is plant your soybeans early. So, right. um, <laughs> you, you know, you talk, you, we just, I think it ties into to your early season vigor uh, talk there. What, what are your thoughts, like, from a genetic side of things on that trend? So, <clears throat> if you're going to plant soybeans early, uh, one of the major things that you need to look at is emergence, but then also tying a good seed treatment package in there to um, help protect yourself. Uh, there's there's some seed treatment products out there that that claim to have a, a bigger effect. Um, I would say that there's some some truth to that. Uh, but making sure that you're one starting with the the right variety. If it's going to be the first one that you're planting, make sure that you're selecting one with with great emergence. Uh, I think there's benefits for for early planting, but the the main thing that I want people to focus on is planting when the conditions are are right. So. Uh, making sure that, that that seed bed is perfect whenever you go in there and plant, uh, that it's not muddy or overworked. Um, I, I do see benefits in, in, in planting soybeans early, but the really the focus shouldn't be on the calendar, but it should be when the conditions are, are optimum. Mm-hmm. Going along with the early season planting that we're seeing, um, also, you know, we are kind of starting to see a shift in maturity groups and being planted in different places compared to our historical, you know, how the state has always been divided. This is, you know, you plant mid fours here, you plant late fives there. People are starting to kind of shift and kind of blend those lines together. Let's talk about that a little bit and kind of yeah, what importance that's playing. And that's something that I'm excited about. Um, so in Southern Missouri, you know, historically, they've, they've planted a lot of group fives. You can't hardly find a, a group five in southern Missouri anymore. They want to go to, a, like, a, an indeterminate late group four. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of good genetics in that uh, maturity range. Um, but also, I think that growers are, are trying to spread their risk a little bit. They're willing to... to plant a little bit earlier or a little bit later than what they what they traditionally had. So looking at maturity groups and soybeans, so if I've got a 4.0 and a 4.1 planted on the same day, I can expect the, the difference to be only one to maybe two days difference in maturity. Okay. So for me to go and plant a 4.0 and a 4.4 on the same day, I can look at the calendar and say, it's only going to be about eight days difference or less uh, before that other one's ready to go. So why I'm excited about that is that we can focus more on placing the right variety on the right field versus having to stick to, we've traditionally planted a 3.7, 3.8, 3.9. We're not used to planting a 4.2. We don't want to plant a 4.2. Well, if you can put it in perspective, 
at 4.2 isn't going to be that much later in maturity than um, than what your 3.7 is. So planting date actually makes a, a, a lot of difference. So making sure that you're uh, spreading your risk, trying to get those those plants maturing at different times. Um, I don't know that there's there's a ton of correlation between differences in maturities and yield uh, from the standpoint of this group four soybean is going to out yield this group three soybean. I, I mean, really what it comes down to is how is this uh, variety going to interact with the conditions that you're presenting it to. So uh, we've got in the boot heel of Missouri, we've seen 100 bushel soybeans out of a 3.9 uh, years past, 10 years ago, they would never do something like that. But the the conditions are right for it, um, and as long as they're they're planted in a timely manner, they they can get it out early and see top yields out of it. So sure. that's something that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, what historically, you know, you mentioned you mature maturity group, and and I appreciate you explaining it um, for you know kind of length of season for folks. What were like kind of the traditional sideboards on what we used to kind of what we used to plant in the, sort of in the state of Missouri or in our trade territory? Yeah, um, northern Missouri would would go to probably a, a 3.4, but some guys are stretching on the earlier side and going into late group twos. Okay. Um, in southern Missouri, uh, you would go to a mid group five, uh, but, they're, but they wanted to get out of that determinate market more so and get in that indeterminate. So... Uh, really, our more soy lineup kind of reflects that. We don't go too much on the early side. Uh, it's just we we don't have a tremendous amount of demand there. The other part of it is, is it's it's hard to produce a soybean that's not really uh, designed for that market. So whenever you get those early soybeans, those group twos and early threes in in Missouri around our production facilities, it makes it tough. Um, but because you said because. Because we're producing them in central Missouri and yeah. and trying to produce a group two there makes it, is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, okay. it makes it tough. Um, I've tried to raise a 3.9 in, in northeast Arkansas for seed, and I've had very limited success with that. <laughs> uh, but I have tried it, and, sure. and we, we just needed to prove it to ourselves. Um, but typically... Uh, or in our lineup, we're ranging anywhere from like a, a 3.6 to um, 4.8, 4.9. That's okay. where really the heart of our maturities are. Um, <clears throat> we're, we're from our testing standpoint, we're going from a 3.4 to about a 5.0. So we're we're trying to test both bounds so that so that we can make sure that if there is a line that maybe is a little bit outside of what we're normally used to. Mm-hmm. If the yield's there, if the agronomics is that are there, we can we can speak to it. We can potentially bring it forward. Sure. You mentioned something else. I want you to go into just just to define it for folks if they're not familiar. Um, determinate versus indeterminate. Can you kind of just share with everybody kind of what that means? So basically, an indeterminate's going to uh, continue flowering through some of its vegetative growth, and uh, a determinate variety is going to. Um, start flowering after it's um, transitioned out of that vegetative growth stage. So it's not going to keep growing as it's flowering. Determinate varieties will come in at about a 5-2, and they'll range to about a group 8 yep. and later. So you mentioned uh, with the early planting seed treatments, um, 
is that something you recommend on on every bean and it just only when you're planting early kind of what do you look for or what do you kind of suggest folks kind of go with i know there's just there's a million different seed treatment options and so i mean for what's out there yeah so i'm not going to speak to any specific products um, sure but i i do believe that there's there's a benefit of running a fungicide and insecticide uh, on every soybean that goes out the door uh, i I'm a believer in it, whether it's planted early or planted late. We're really, whenever we're planting a seed, we're trying to set ourselves up for success whenever harvest comes. So to get the maximum yield, we want to make sure that we're doing everything that we can to protect that seed, which is going to create bushels for us. So I will, I will stand by running uh, fungicide and insecticide on everything. Um, I also want to mention uh, sudden death seed treatments. So the best way to uh, handle sudden death is to plant a variety that has good sudden death resistance. But <clears throat> if, if we're on a one to nine scale on sudden death, you'll never see me rate a product a nine. The reason why is, is because there is no truly 100% complete resistance to sudden death. So if you've got a, a field with a history of sudden death, and uh, that you're planting early, I would highly recommend putting a, a sudden death treatment on a, a variety that has good resistance. That's really the best way to ensure that you're you're not going to see a, yeah an impact from that disease. Right, and like I mean, we talk we've talked about in our previous podcasts on the planter maintenance and stuff. We that's the most important pass of the year is the first pass um, across the field. Is so you know making sure you have your planter sound and set up right. But also, when you're putting that seed in the ground, making sure you're giving it the best opportunity to come up. And so, having a good fungicide and insecticide seed treatment on it um, is definitely going to help that plant, help that seed come out of the ground. Because yeah. if you don't get it out of the ground, it's not going to. So, I mean, on that same thing, you want to think about seed treatments. And I, and maybe this is maybe I have a misunderstanding, and maybe it's not on the soybean side. Maybe it's on the seed treatment side, but. By having seed treatment on the soybeans, that helps you replant situations too, right? That's correct. So a lot of a lot of seed companies, including us, offer um, 100% replants on fungicide and insecticide treated seed. So uh, if that worst case scenario does happen, where the conditions are perfect, you go in there and plant, and then you get a heavy rainfall event and it it crusts over, and the the seed can't come out of the ground, it's going to help you on that side of things. But uh, I think the biggest biggest key to it is is you want to do everything that you can to set yourself up for success. So you want to um, find that that perfect variety for your field, but then also make sure that you're working with a company that that has a good reputation for for bringing out high quality seed. Sure. Yeah, that makes makes good sense. So you know, you mentioned you know treating the seed. You mentioned planting when conditions are optimal. Um, you know, a lot of folks across across our state, anyway, our, our trade territory. You know, myself included. You know, I've got I've got bottom ground, I've got hill slopes, I've got stuff that dries out, I've got stuff that stays wet. Assuming that you're not, you know, you're you don't have plots and necessarily maybe all of maybe most of those conditions, maybe not all of them, but kind of what do you look like? What do you look for um, agronomically, kind of for different different soil conditions or different places on the topography landscape, I guess. So the first thing that I'm going to do is ask the producer quite a few questions because I need okay. to get a, I need to get a good baseline on what I'm going up against. 
Um, so some of those questions is what's the what's the yield that the producers shooting for? So what is his yield goal? Um, what soil types are we working with? How's the soil drainage? Um, what's the disease history of the field? So kind of going into a, a productive bottom ground environment. I'll, I'll speak to that. So okay. <clears throat> first, first thing that I'm going to do after I get those first or those questions answered is I'm going to look at the agronomics of the varieties. Um, the ones that in a bottom ground situation that I typically always look at is uh, standability. So bottom ground soybeans typically have more vegetative growth to them. Um, we want to line with good standability to prevent lodging. Um, we don't want that early lodging that can, that can uh, result in, in yield loss later on. Uh, sudden death is a big one. Sudden death uh, typically shows up when the soils are cool and wet. Many times our bottom ground uh, soils aren't our quickest drying soils, so that excess moisture early in the year is perfect for the development of, of sudden death. Mm -hmm. um, we need to select a line that, that has strong SDS tolerance, but it's also a good idea to parent with, a, with an SDS feed treatment, what I was talking about earlier. Uh, one thing that I think that gets overlooked a little bit is Phytophthora. So Phytophthora typically develops in, in warm and wet conditions. Um, once our soils, once again, our soils don't always drain well, so that late season phytophthora can be an issue. Uh, so we want to look at the field tolerance of that variety. So there's a lot of, there, there's quite a few different forms of resistance. Uh, in my eyes, I want to be looking at the field tolerance. So, because that's really, in the end, what, what truly matters to me is how is it going to, how is it going to handle phytophthora? Um, I think that part of the reason that we kind of overlook phytophthora from time to time is we talk about phytophthora from a seed treatment perspective, but right. we're talking about a chemical control on this. So we're only getting uh, control for a, a portion of the season. So we want to make sure that we've got that, that good tolerance and from the genetics. Yeah. Uh, another one is charcoal rot. So does the, the history or does the field have a history of it? If so, we need to make sure that we select a, a variety that's got good resistance. We typically see um, charcoal rot expressed during hot and dry periods. Um, I also see it sometimes in, in sandy areas as well. I would say that that kind of correlates with the dryness. Uh, we don't, that water will leach down quicker in those sandy spots. So if I'm looking for charcoal rot in a trial, I'm gonna go find the sandiest spot in that trial and I'm gonna start evaluating there. Uh, frog eye leaf spot is also another one that that I need to mention, um, productive bottom grounds, uh, the environments typically have higher moisture most all the time. Uh, so the frog eye pressure is higher, but that's not one that I get too worked up about because we can apply fungicide and either sure. prevent or control that one. So, uh, just, we need to be looking at our placement more than just how does this variety yield? Because some years it may yield at the absolute top and nothing can touch it. But if we're not paying close attention to the agronomics and we have the conditions that are favorable for a disease that we overlooked, uh, it can be pretty well towards the bottom. Yeah. So you talked about a lot of, you know, phytophthora and looking at some of those things. Well, you know, one of the 
problems that we have in Missouri, especially soybeans, you know, one of our biggest losses is SCN, mm -hmm. soybean cyst nematode. So what is the resistant types that we have in our soybeans? And have we looked at possibly utilizing different resistant types? Because, I mean, we know that we've been using the same one for a long time, not just in more soy lines, but all, all soybean lines. Yeah, so there's a couple different types of, of resistance for SCN. The majority of the market uses one, one form of it. So crop rotation and uh, putting an SCNC treatment on, uh, whether it's biological or chemical, um, if you've got high uh, pressures, that's something that you need to look at. I think that there's times where we uh, kind of overlook SCN because we can't see it. Uh, but that's definitely something that, that we also need to be uh, thinking about whenever we're, we're putting our uh, seed treatments on is do we do we see a value out of the SCNC treatment and more than likely you're going to see a value out of it every year just due to what the what the pressures are in Missouri some of that background pressure I guess and I know I'm going to ask this little little bit of a loaded question because I know Cameron I think has messed with it a little bit too but um, let's talk about planting population a little bit um, you know, I know that it seems like there's been some data out there that says we don't need to plant as many soybeans. And actually, I've, all, I've also seen on some varieties listed, you know, don't plant to, you know, don't plant a high population with this variety. Like what, what characteristics of that, is it just plant to plant competition or, or kind of what characteristics of those varieties do they, do they like the lower population? So population in soybeans, uh, I know that there's studies out there showing conflicting uh, uh, evidence but from my standpoint whatever you're comfortable with planting is where we're going to start. Uh, I've seen soybeans planted at 120,000 population make over 100 bushels and I've seen um, soybeans planted at 180,000 make 40 bushel. So I'm not sold on a direct correlation. The one thing that I will tell you is that we can take a, we, we do see standability issues in high uh, planting populations. Okay. So if I've got a, a line that typically gets a little bit taller, I want to spread those, those plants out a little bit more so that they can get a little bit better stock in them um, or stem in them. So, there will be lines that I'll make the recommendation do not plant over 140,000. Um, I do believe that the, the soybeans can flex out and, and still have top and yield potential if you manage them. Uh, so that's, that's going to be kind of the determining factor is what are you comfortable with uh, from a planting population standpoint, but then also what can we do from a, a standability standpoint to if we've got a, a line that that typically gets a little bit taller, what can we do to improve the sandability on it? Yeah, I agree. And just kind of speaking from some of the trial work I've done, um, thinking about not only standability and from that sense, but also we got to think about when you're reducing your weed control or even going to, sorry, reducing your population, you're thinking about your weed control aspect too, because your, your canopy closure is a lot less. Now there's differences in your soybean varieties too on your canopy closure too. So I mean, yeah. So um, you, we'll so have, that can also affect it too, based with your population. And and, and that's a that's an important factor to, to look at is 
what what is the plant type is it a, a more thin plant type or is it a, a more bushy plant type so those are all things that kind of come into play whenever you're looking at the big picture of your overall cropping plan right so i mean with population like just to follow up on the weed control piece i mean you know we know that we've been trying to push for herbicide technology traits because we're struggling more and more with weed control and we're losing herbicides to be able to utilize so making sure that we have the right population so that we can get good canopy closure that's a big factor in being able to help control those weeds Mm -hmm. when they do present themselves Mm -hmm. so it's kind of a balance between not planting too thick but also you know or planting enough to where you can actually still get full full shade absolutely yeah that makes sense I appreciate you defining the less than 140,000 too, because one of the varieties that I ordered, it, it said that on there. So that got my question answered. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioned the, the different plant types, and I assume that has maybe a little bit uh, to, to put into to row spacing as well, and, and as far as selecting the right variety for the right for what for what maybe a grower is doing for a row spacing standpoint for soybeans. Yeah. So whenever you're looking at a wide row whether it's a a 30 in central missouri or a 38 and um the the delta you know whenever we're looking at row or wide row spacing we want to try to focus on um, a more bushy soybean just so that we can get those those rows closed Uh, i don't think that's the only determining factor i still think that that agronomics and and yield potential is really the the number one driver and then we can build our weed control platform around that but there's you will see a benefit out of of, from a weed control standpoint out of uh, putting a more bushy plant type on a on a wide row versus a a thinner one Um, the majority of our lines are are more of like a medium bush soybean we do have a, a couple thin and a couple bush but uh, there, the, with a medium plant type, you've got a lot of flexibility in whether you want to drill your beans or um, put them on a little bit wider of a row. Yeah, right. And it's hard to, yeah, it'd be hard to come out with a variety in our territory anyway that, that had to be one way or the other just because there's, seems like a lot of variability out there and there's a lot of folks on 15s, yep. you know, um, so which, which is a little bit of both for sure. What about some of the specialized stuff? You know, it seems like there's been a market for non-GMO beans recently, which I know kind of throws a wrench in the uh, the whole herbicide platform that we kind of just discussed. But um, I, I assume there's still some genetics work going on there uh, in the you know untraded platform. Yeah, it's it's probably it's it's a little bit limited, but there there is still some breeding that's being done there. Uh, the the non-GMO piece is kind of tricky at times you got to figure out what kind of market that you're going for does it have to be certified non-gmo or is it just conventional because there's a big difference between that to have a certified non-gmo soybean that's pretty tricky uh, in today's world so can you get away with a conventional soybean in in the market that that you're going to so uh, that's the that's the very first thing that i would ask Uh, we have we have moved away from the conventional market completely I know that there's companies that are still offering them, but uh, it's just been a niche market for us. 
I think there are some places that are probably offering premiums for them, but yeah. I'm really looking for the absolute top yielding products uh, that that give our customers options from a herbicide perspective. And you know, just to build on his question, when we're thinking about specialty products or value added products, you know, high lake soybeans, for example, is is one of those products. Is that something that we've thought about adding to our portfolio, looking at, um, you know, just potentially in the future? I would say that if there's a buyer for it and that there's enough of a demand for it, that's something that we would absolutely look at. A lot of the specialty products are really uh, revolving around, is there a buyer paying a premium? Sure, yeah. Because typically with a special product, if there's a premium involved, that means that there's extra work involved. So um, planting a conventional soybean, you don't have the post options that you do with um, um, Enlist or an Extendflex soybean. So not saying that we wouldn't we wouldn't look at those, but but the markets have to be there to, to justify it. Absolutely. Yeah. So looking down the road, kind of what's next? It seems like we get a, a different uh, herbicide platform every year here recently. <laughs> I assume that trend is probably not going to continue, but maybe it is kind of what do you see four or five years down the road anything major coming down the pipeline from a soybean genetics side of things i think that a lot of that will well the pipeline moves slow sure so it takes a lot of years to um get that new um herbicide trade to market we just figured that out with extendflex you know we were delayed a couple of years on what they what they expected uh and lists saw the same thing so I think it'll be a few years down the road. Um, I know that Bayer's got HT4 coming, which is going to add the 2,4-D resistance. I know that there's talks of a uh, another line after or another herbicide platform after that. Um, but I think it'll be quite a few years before we see it, just due to the regulatory approval. Um, and we just got on to Extend Flex, so uh, they're going to utilize that platform as long as they can. Well. I mean, just speaking personally, I, I hope it lasts a long time. I mean, that's, I better for, that's better for all of us if I, it does. I do too, because there's not a whole lot of new chemicals that are really coming to market. No, I mean, we haven't had a new mode of action in years. So um, we got to be able to utilize the mode of actions that we have now and start managing properly so that we don't lose another one. That's um, right. When we're thinking about resistance. That's right. So even though ExtendFlex is a brand new uh, trade platform, the chemicals that are going to be used against that or with that trade platform or, or have got some age to them and some resistance to them. So yep. making sure that we are doing the best job that we can from a uh, residual standpoint is going to set us up for success. But if we if we uh, rely on Liberty as a, as a post option it, to control water hemp and, and other weeds, we're not going to have that that available or it won't be working for us very long yeah yeah to be able to keep these traits sound and keep them for a long time we need to definitely make sure we're utilizing pre-emergent herbicides and overlapping residuals and making sure we're trying to keep the weeds from coming up instead of trying to rescue our soybeans later on the year absolutely so creating a plan starting on that plan early and, and and so then all you do is you just have to make a checklist I got this part of the plan done and just keep moving down. Yep. So other than herbicide, anything else defensive wise you think against, you know, I, I know it, with the short turnaround or, I mean, I guess in 
in retrospect to, to some other things, it seems like short turnaround, you know, as far as rolling through different different lines. Maybe we can come up with something fast, I guess, if we need it. But anything else kind of down the road that you see coming that... I don't expect to see any insect resistance in soybeans in the U.S. market. I know that they've got some that they use in South America, but uh, the only thing that you'll probably be seeing coming will be uh, more driven towards herbicide resistance. Yeah. Well, it's it's been impressive, you know, with what folks have gotten, um, you know, yield-wise in recent years. Um, and so you can definitely tell from that that, <laughs> that there's some turnover in genetics and, and somebody's certainly working on it. So There's a lot of genetic potential in soybeans. Um, you know, they, it sounds sounds like a dream but you really do have that 300 bushel potential in soybeans and it won't be long before before we're getting to that point where we're starting to see some guys get there um i know that there's a lot of uh, producers that feel like they've hit that wall on soybean yields whether it's 50 or 70 whatever it is um managing soybeans do respond to management uh making sure that we Manage soybeans as intensively as we manage corn is really the key to that. So, uh, making sure that we're we're putting that variety on the right field, uh, making sure those planting conditions are right, and and really managing that crop to the best of our ability to keep the stress off of it, so that we can retain pods. You know, a soybean plant loses 70% of its blooms, so that tells you what the genetic potential of a soybean is. Yeah. If you were raising 50 bushel soybeans, you could have raised. Uh, 70% more. So um, trying to figure out what those keys are uh, to retaining all those blooms is, is where we need to be focusing because I, I truly believe that we've got a lot of genetic potential. And if we could sell 300 bushel soybeans at $13, $14, we would uh, be sitting good. <laughs> yeah, that'd be all right with me. <laughs> um, me too. I'd maybe need to find some farm ground. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cameron would be plowing up his <laughs> backyard in the subdivision. Uh, <laughs> anything else you want to leave folks with, Tommy? I, I appreciate you coming in and doing this. It's it's, it's a cool topic. Um, the genetics thing is, is something that I don't think a lot of folks understand fully. Um, I know I certainly don't, so I appreciate your time. But um, anything else that you want to leave folks with? Um, we, accept, we accept shameless plugs here at the Made for Agriculture podcast. So if there's anything you'd like to throw in there, we're good with it. No, I appreciate you guys' time, and thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Made for Agriculture. Email comments and questions to podcast at mfa-inc.com.